Welcome everyone to Alumni and Entrepreneurship at INSEAD. Um, I, we are your hosts, John Kang. And Rahul Thakrard. Uh, bringing to you down to earth, yet inspiring perspectives on entrepreneurship, startups, and scale-ups. In today's episode, we will be looking at entrepreneurship from the perspective of solving a very real problem that affects all of us students. So today's guest is Maxime Khomal, a 10D MBA at INSEAD. Maxime is a co-founder of an e-scooter startup called Dot, which is based in Amsterdam and operates in 10 cities throughout Europe. Since inception, Dot has raised a total of 50 million euros in seed and Series A funding. So thank you very much, Maxime, for your time today. And uh, can you tell us a little more about the career journey that you took before you founded Dot? And, you know, some of the things that I'm mainly interested in are, you know, what are moments in your life that pushed you towards an entrepreneurial life later on? Yeah, hi guys. Uh, first, uh, thanks for, for having me. Um, and I'm very pleased to, to, to have the opportunity to, to share some of the uh, story I, I, I gathered uh, through uh, DOT and uh, my past life uh, to the INSEAD community. Um, I, so my career, I, I started to, so I'm an engineer as a background, um, and I started to work for a company called Decathlon, which is a sports retailer. Uh, about seven years, I was based in Asia, was working in operations, uh, uh, generally speaking, in smaller uh, setup. Uh, was uh, in, in Cambodia, where I opened operations, uh, for instance. Uh, also worked uh, in, uh, in Malaysia, in, uh, in uh, Indonesia. Um, and always worked in, in very uh, small entities of uh, Decathlon, which was a big company, where I had a lot of freedom uh, to build things and, and, and to, uh, to be, I would say, uh, uh, creative. And then after six years, I came back to the headquarters of Decathlon, which was in France, in Lille. And suddenly I was in a very big headquarter with about 2,000 people. And suddenly everything became quite slow. Every decision took a lot of time. And so I got very quickly frustrated. And so at that time I thought, okay, like I really need a change. Uh, I need a much more dynamic environment. And so that's the time where I decided to do INSEAD because I thought, okay, I'm a, you know, just an engineer. I need to uh, enlarge a little bit my uh, my, my skills and, and, and I wanted to, to go a little bit more into business. And so when I went uh, or when I finished uh, in Seattle, there was basically two main options for me. One was to go for uh, some uh, big companies. Uh, so for instance, McKinsey that I'm sure you guys know, uh, Apple, Amazon. So they all offered me a great position and sometimes paying off for almost the entirety of my MBA, which was very attractive at that time since I had that. Uh, or I could join a, a much smaller company, which was much more exciting for me because I thought I would have a lot more responsibilities. And, uh, but obviously uh, there was a lot more risk. And in the end, I decided uh, to go for a small startup, which was called uh, Wayfair, uh, which was just uh, launching at that time in Europe. I joined a small team of uh, of five people, so uh, with the, the the responsibility of building all the operational side of the of the welfare business in Europe. So welfare was a, a, an online retailer for for companies. I did that. Uh, was super excited. I I loved the people I work with. Uh, I had tons of work. <laughs> I had to build everything from scratch. 
I had ton of freedom. Uh, and, uh, and we expanded the business. We, 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 we went, uh, so uh, at, at the, the end, uh, when I, I left the company six years after in Europe, uh, there was a team of about uh, 800 people. And so I was the, the general manager of the, the company in Europe. Uh, we did our IPO. And so this was all uh, uh, very exciting. Uh, at that point, I was thinking, okay, what do I do next? I, I felt like I was a little bit getting uh, saturated. I, I, I had lost a little bit my passion. I, online retail is great. It was a great startup adventure, but I didn't see the point of selling or pushing people to buy more and more. Uh, it didn't align with my personal belief. And so that's when I, I started to look around and I got very interested in, uh, in micromobility because I saw it as a solution to reduce pollution in, in cities. I, I got in touch with the, the CEO of uh, OFO, uh, which is a bike sharing company. Uh, so he was a the Chinese bike sharing company. So the, the founder wanted someone to build a business in Europe. I joined OFO, I thought it was a great idea uh, to, to offer uh, uh, bikes uh, in cities and get a lot more people to, to practice bike. Unfortunately, I saw very quickly that the, this business, uh, the way it was done was not sustainable. Uh, the, the bikes didn't last. Uh, they were creating a lot of waste. Uh, operations were not managed as it should. Uh, monetization was not done as it should. And so on one side, I saw the market potential. I saw, okay, like people, when you put bikes on the streets, uh, they love it. Uh, but you know, in the same time, the way the business is done is losing a lot of money. It cannot be sustainable either economically or environmentally. And so that's when out of frustration uh, together with uh, some members of the, the team, we say, well, it, it seems like it could be part of the future of mobility. It seems like people like it, but it's just there's no companies that today is doing right, uh, whether the, the American players or the, the Chinese players. So that's when we decided, we say, okay, Let's build our own company, uh, which was to become a, a dot, uh, but building it from the start as a sustainable business, both environmentally and uh, uh, economically. And so about now, one year and a half ago, so that's how the, the dot adventure started. And then, uh, you know, we, we, um, we raised some money and, and started uh, the business in multiple cities in Europe. It's, it's it sounds amazing the the sort of journey that you've took um to establishing dot maxime um can you tell us a little bit more about um how you went from the ideation to actually building it up to um to the the magnitude that it is in terms of it being in 10 cities right now yeah um i think i think when you build a startup the point is you know you can you can have a rough plan, but generally speaking, you cannot plan for everything. So really the the way, at least for me, uh, uh, it happened is that you, you, you start with something and then you do the next thing. <laughs> and then progressively, you know, you figure out basically how to, to, to build a company. Uh, and, 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 and so anyway, but the, the general um, way we, we built this company was, First, uh, we needed a founding team. 
Uh, and so right at the beginning, really the, the two main things we did was, okay, we need some product people for hardware and software so that we can create the, the initial product or the MVP. Um, and we need a location because uh, the people that wanted to do the project with me were from a little bit uh, all over Europe. And so we didn't have a clear location. So that's the two things we need. So one, we decided the location, which happened to be Amsterdam in the end. And the second was we found a few key people. So a head of software product, a head of hardware product, a head of software engineering, a head of uh, recruitment, and a few other guys to really build a, be the core team. And so this core team was mostly incentivized on, on uh, equity at the beginning without taking uh, a salary. And then we started to work together on one, uh, building the initial products so finding a scooter uh, in Asia that we would produce and that would uh, be made for shared mobility. And in the same time, building the initial uh, app for the, the users as well as all the, the, the fleet management system that is, uh, that is associated. So we started that and then uh, the next step for us was to look for money because it's a very capex intensive game. So you have to buy uh, vehicles um, and, and pay for them before you put them on the streets and then start to progressively make money and get the return. Uh, and so we had to, to raise money, serious money. Uh, and so the next step was really once we had the core concept, the core team, uh, the core product was to look for funding. And so we, we, we wanted to raise between 10 to 15 uh, uh, million. In the end, we raised 20 million. The reason was to raise so much money for seed funding uh, was that we believed that we could only uh, succeed in this market if we were able to buy sufficient uh, numbers of scooters so that when we come to a city, we have enough density, enough availability for our users so that they want to use it on a daily basis and that we can obviously compete with the much bigger uh, American or, or Chinese players. So that's really, uh, I think, how it started. And then obviously, once we get, got the money, once we, we bought the, the fleet, then we decided, okay, we are not going to go everywhere right away. Let's start in one, two, three cities. Let's supply like in retail, a type of a concept store type of approach. Let's test the model. Let's make sure that the users like it. Let's make sure that it's uh, as profitable as possible. And once we get the model right, then we are going to expand in, in more cities. And that's what we did so far for about, uh, I think, six months. We only operated in three cities when all our competitors were creating <laughs> tens of cities like crazy. And once we felt we had a really good model, a very good operational model, we decided, okay, let's go in more cities. And so that's, that's uh, why now we are operating in, in 10 cities across Europe, applying really, uh, I would say, a, a disciplined growth type of uh, approach. Yeah, I think it's really interesting the way you describe how you scaled up your operations in a very strategic way, like especially when you were, say, when you were discussing how um, your, your strategy of, uh, of, scaling, of scaling up and the fact that you know, you wanted enough density and that actually also influenced um, the amount that you were asking for in terms of investment. I think that's a really um, insightful thing that some um, 
potential entrepreneurs would would really look at as very as as an as an insightful thing that they could definitely um, emulate. Um, I just wanted to go uh, go back to talking about um, when you hired people. You said you mm -hmm. mentioned that you were hiring the core team, and um, I actually ha have had a business myself. But I feel like one of the most difficult things is is how to actually hire that core team. You know, where mm -hmm. do you look at and and how how do you actually do the whole process? And so I was wondering if you could shed some light um, on that. Yeah, I think I think first you have to be super clear on what kind of skills you need for your business. And for us, it was very clear that we had three core uh, type of uh, knowledge that we needed. One was uh, software uh, product. Uh, the second was hardware product, and the third was operations uh, for to manage our fleet. And so the way we approached it is that. Uh, first, uh, I was lucky enough to have a, a guy uh, that had worked with me already before uh, that was basically specialized in, in recruitment. So he joined uh, the project from the beginning. And this person helped us then in turn to, to look for, uh, for, uh, for the type of expertise that we needed. We did not want to have, I would say, like junior people coming out of schools that had no expertise we wanted like super expert people because and the reason was because we wanted to be able to move fast we knew that the competition product would be something that is profitable and sustainable so we did not want the the kind of junior type of profile so we went for people that had already a lot of expertise in their field in software, in hardware, in, in operations. And we try to really build uh, this, this kind of dream team. And so, you know, we either through our network uh, or through uh, uh, basically uh, uh, normal head hunting, we, we, we approach these people. And really after, it's a matter of convincing them because these people are super experienced, right? So it's, so it's not like they, 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 they are looking for a job. They have plenty of opportunities. So the only way you can get them is, you know, do you, can you get them excited about the project? Can you make them believe that there's a huge market? Uh, do they like you also as a person? You know, do they want to work with you? Do, would they think that they would have fun working with you or not? And so that's, you know, a lot of what I, or the time I spent at that time was really to discuss the project, discuss the vision, um, and, and make sure that from a personal standpoint, they, they, they would feel quite uh, keen to, to, to work with me and the, the rest of the team. And then once they get, got quite excited, obviously, uh, then the question was, you know, around what kind of terms, but this is key, I, I agree. At the beginning, you know, you, you just have a few people, if you get one wrong, uh, you are going to pay it very dearly uh, in the coming uh, years. Uh, you know, if your guy uh, that you chose for software uh, is not the right guy, it's going to be a disaster. So, so you need to be uh, to spend a lot of time on that. Uh, you need to make sure that you find the right people, and you need to make sure also that they're really totally committed to the to the project and not just uh, you know half time. Yeah, it's it's definitely like a skill and such a requirement to be able to spot um, good talent, not just talented people, but, but people who will actually 
be convinced to work well with you um, in the near future to make the business successful from where it is. Um, I just wanted to move on to our next question, and it, it it's a little it's on a slightly different angle as well in terms of um, sustainability. Mm -hmm. um, so one of the things I noticed when I was looking at the e-scooter um, industry, and I think you mentioned this as well before, and this was actually how Dot was formed as well, because you know there is there has been a large amount of unsustainable practices with e-scooters, um, not just mm -hmm. not so not only you know the industry uh industry trash but also surrounding carbon emissions through some yep. of the related processes like the manufacturing and the upkeep um and we were just wondering um how is dot addressing such um sustainability issues yeah so uh from an environmental uh, standpoint what we do is we have partnered with uh um, a top engineering school in France called Polytechnique. Uh, and they help us to analyze uh, what were our carbon emissions or what were the carbon emissions that we were generating directly and indirectly through our operations. And so for the kind of business we are in, basically there are two main sources of uh, carbon emission. The first one is uh, manufacturing, so the manufacturing of your e-scooters, which counts about 50% uh, of the, the carbon emissions. And then uh, the rest uh, is basically all the operations that are associated to, uh, uh, to uh, the, the, uh, the, the scooter uh, operation in the city. So for instance, so recharging, warehouse, repairs, uh, and also obviously the office. So we have, uh, we are using uh, computers uh, we are using we have a database and so on and so all of this is uh, is uh, generating some uh, some carbon emission and so once we knew uh, uh, how much we were uh, generating we put uh, uh, plans uh, to reduce progressively the carbon emission so for instance if you talk about uh, manufacturing uh, first if you use recycled materials you can already uh, reduce your your carbon emission but on top of that the real goal is how long the e-scooter will last. If it lasts only, let's say, two to three months, as it was the case at the beginning of for this industry, not with Dot, but with other players, obviously, you, you know, you, you won't be able to, to do many kilometers with the e-scooter, and therefore, the carbon emission per kilometer will be quite high. But if, on the contrary, you can make your e-scooter last three, four, five years or, or much more, then your average carbon emission per kilometer that is associated to manufacturing will be quite low, especially if you compare it to cars, but even public transportation. So that's the first goal. You really want to build hardware that will last as long as possible and that you also maintain. So meaning that you have really, you need really good repair operations to, to make your scooter uh, last many years. And the second part is operations. So for operations, it's uh, all about recharging, especially that that uh, that consume a lot of uh, uh, energy. And so for that, it's the same: is uh, how do you optimize your recharge operation? For instance, you use renewable energies, but also you want to reduce the all the transportation that is associated to these operations. So for instance, for us, we move from non-swappable batteries to swappable batteries, which means that we can use cargo e-bikes in the city to do all the the battery uh, swaps operations. So 
this means that you know we are constantly as a company uh, aiming to to reduce uh, uh, the carbon emission but it starts by having really good visibility then taking action to reduce them and on top of that what we do is we offset uh, these carbon emissions by uh, paying for uh, for uh, a fund which is called carbonfund.org so, so they have multiple projects to grow trees and so on so that it's not perfect but at least we we can compensate uh, uh, the carbon emissions that uh, uh, that we have. Um, and just to finish, uh, th this is very different from the approach that was taken by some of our competitors. Some of our competitors, because they wanted uh, to go for speed and and really uh, <laughs> using, I would call them, uh, you know, blitz scaling type of uh, approach where they wanted to go very fast in many cities with whatever product they had, they decided to go with e-scooters that did not last much so it lasted only two months three months and plus they didn't have really good operations to repair them and that was creating a lot of waste and carbon emission which is the reason why uh, the industry was criticized for that we decided instead to wait a little bit more to develop a really good e-scooter that was made for shared mobility so much more robust and because of that even our first generation of e-scooter that we we launched uh, uh, more than a year ago is still at this stage uh, operating in uh, in uh, all our cities. That's you know I I really like that answer, Maxime. You know a lot of things about that that I really like. Um, the product is essential for you know sustainability planning, and you know it seems like you've had a lot of you put a lot of thought into that, and that's that's impressive. And you know sustainability is not this esoteric thing. You know it's like you you got to have visibility about what's actually happening, and for that you need data. And, you know, you're never going to be perfect, but, you know, even if you're not perfect, there's something you can do about it afterwards. So, yeah, you know, exactly. Exactly. I think the point is to continuously improve. And I think there's another thing which is interesting, maybe for uh, INSEAD uh, students, is that what makes sense in this case, environmentally, makes sense also economically, right? If your hardware lasts longer, it means also that you can depreciate it on a much longer period of time. And therefore, your return on investment will probably be a lot higher, right? Uh, the same if you reduce your uh, the, the, the transportation that you need to conduct your operation, for instance, because you move from non-swappable battery to swappable batteries, uh, you reduce your transportation costs and therefore you reduce your OPEX and you make your business a lot more profitable. So environmentally friendly type of uh, business uh, policies don't necessarily go against what makes sense economically, and in many, in ma not always, but in many cases, actually, the go the two sorry uh, go go together. So that's what's uh, also super interesting. I think when you start to think about sustainability, yeah. I totally agree. Um, I am conscious about time, so we're going to have yeah. to go to the next question. But you know, I I think we could do a whole podcast about sustainability. So <laughs> I really appreciate your insights on this. Um, so Maxime, you know, as, as would be expected, you know, we, we have to discuss the coronavirus crisis, you know, that's where, you know, the news today from IMF is, uh, we're probably gonna have the, the biggest recession since uh, the Great Depression back in the 30s. So, you know, obviously it's a big theme. Um, so what I wanted to understand, you know, is, is two things essentially. So one is how is it impacting the day-to-day -day operations at DOT? So that's number one. And then number two is, you know, what do you think it's going to mean uh, maybe in the short term or even in the med medium term for the competitive landscape? 
Um, and this is bearing in mind that Bird, for example, you know, I read a news article the other day that they're laying off a third of the workforce. So, you know, what do you think is going to happen and is it going to be a survival of the fittest uh, uh, mechanics? Yeah, uh, so in our case, uh, the concrete impact of coronavirus was uh, uh, two things. One is the, the demand suddenly dropped by about 80 or 90 percent uh, uh, in all the cities where we were operating. So if you can imagine that, it's like you, you, you lose 80 to 90 percent of revenues within 10 days. It, it, it has a massive impact economically. Uh, and second, obviously, uh, uh, you know, suddenly you start to to, to have to deal with uh, a lot more, uh, I would say, uh, health and safety type of issues because obviously you want to make sure that your workers uh, operate in a, in a safe environment if they, they can still operate them. Um, so it was tough, you know, and I think the, the question for us was, wow, you know, should we actually stop completely operating in the cities or not? Uh, that was the first question. And the second question was, well, economically, it's going to be super impactful for us. Uh, our cash burn is going to increase a lot. What do we do? Um, so on the first question, we decided actually, uh, and we were the, almost the only one to decide to do it in this way, that as a public service, we believe that we should keep operating in the cities so that, for instance, health uh, workers in the healthcare sectors or hospitals and so on could still uh, go to work and use a safe way uh, to go to work. Uh, uh, you know, shared scooters are much more safe than public transportation because you are outside in the air and you, you, you are not uh, meeting people. Uh, but it's the same for you know workers in grocery stores and so on. So we decided to keep our operation in each city. We just reduced a lot the size of the fleet, but we kept operating in agreement with uh, uh, with the, the municipalities and the, the ministries of the, the countries where we are operating. The second question was cash-wise, what do we do? <laughs> uh, suddenly we have uh, you know, a, a, a lot of uh, spendings, but, but very little revenues. So then uh, you know, we, we did uh, all the, I would say we applied, uh, we say the crisis playbook. So we stopped suddenly uh, all the investments. Uh, so for instance, especially in terms of CapEx, uh, we stopped all the marketing costs. We started to renegotiate all our contracts, uh, really uh, trying to bring down the costs or to stop paying for a few months so that we could reduce the cash burn as, as much as possible. And then the last point was payroll because obviously we have a, a large uh, workforce. What do we do? And so we, we first we stopped all the, the interim contracts uh, uh, that, that was kind of easy. But then we still had a lot of people on our payroll. And so here is the advantage of operating in Europe is that many countries have uh, um, set up uh, part-time uh, unemployment schemes, which meant that we could put uh, a number of our staff in part-time uh, unemployment and still have our uh, employees be paid either fully or partially for the, the time that they were not working. And this in turn, uh, compared to some American players, enabled us to really keep the entirety of our workforce while reducing very significantly uh, the, 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 the payroll uh, by, uh, you know, actually by, by, by about 50%. So 
So that enabled us in turn to, to be quite lean and to reduce our cash burn and keep going. So that's a little bit how we have been uh, dealing with the, the crisis in, in addition of you know, setting up also a lot of um, health uh, and safety measures. Uh, in terms of competition, it, it's tough for everyone. But obviously, as we work built in a much leaner way, uh, we believe that for us, we are in a much better shape than some of the competitors that had huge already cash burn, very, very big teams, uh, because they were going for this kind of blitzscaling strategy. And what we have seen is that a lot of these competitors right now are struggling with huge cash burn. Uh, and and uh, Lime is, for instance, one of these. Uh, Bird is another one. Um, and what we see is that right now they are adjusting. So they are uh, reducing a lot of their, their workforce, uh, like Bird did. Uh, and what we suspect is that because they have such a big need uh, to, to become more uh, efficient uh, economically, they will probably rationalize uh, their spendings once they uh, relaunch, and which means that probably they will start to be in less cities than they were before, which means that there will be overall less competition uh, in the cities where we'll be uh, operating. You know? So that's a little bit probably what uh, will happen. It's also possible that some uh, will disappear uh, or will get bankrupt, but uh, this will depend on a bit on how long this uh, this uh, takes out. Yeah, and it's and it's really amazing. So you know, you're not the first uh, co-founder we talked to for this podcast, and it's really just really inspiring talking to NCAT alumni and hearing about the things they're doing uh, regarding the situation. So you know, you we've we've talked to people in real estate and other industries, and you know, doing things for the public service or volunteering or just offering their uh, technology as well. It's really fascinating, and that's why you really see the force. Uh, that NCAD is and you know it's more than the slogan you know business as a force for good so you know, it's, it's really inspiring for for me personally to hear this and you know I, I really hope the best uh, the best in in what comes in the future so you know the last question um, you know obviously we have a lot of 20 J's D's you know other alumni who are listening in uh, a little worried about their job prospects you know they're not sure what they're going to do traditional recruiting is, is looking a little tough right now. So, you know, what kind of advice or inspiration do you have for, you know, our, our alumni and student base right now at NCAD? Mm. I, I talk to a lot of investors and VCs and a lot of them, what they tell me is that they've seen the best startups and the best entrepreneurs start during crisis. Uh, and I, I, I think the reason is because these are people that usually, the people that are able to see clearly enough so that they see opportunities during crisis time and in the same time are able to build a business during crisis time when probably it's a little bit hard also to get funding. Once they come out of the crisis, they usually are quite strong. And so I think my first message is if you want, if you have an idea, uh, that you feel uh, makes sense uh, according to the local environment, uh, the, the current context, uh, and you feel uh, post-corona, uh, you know, we will even be more um, 
um, valuable, uh, I think then you should go for it. You know, that's, that's the perfect time to do it. Uh, uh, especially because probably there are not anyway a lot of recruitments happening in normal companies. So, yeah, if you have an idea, you are convinced about it, you think it makes sense in Corona, but also in post-Corona time, just go for it. Try. There's no big risk. Don't overly plan for it. Uh, you, you, um, you know, I think you just have to, to do the first thing, or get a small team, start to build your product, your MVP, test it. And then, you know, do all the administration work and things, you know, will line up and, and you will see that you will be very surprised when you look back uh, three, six months of everything that you have done. But don't overly think about it. If you have a great idea, you're passionate, just uh, uh, do it. I think that's my first advice. And, and if you go for it, make sure that you, you do it with people you like, but also that complement the skills that, uh, that you don't have. So, so that's maybe uh, what I can say. Awesome. You know, like, what I think and, you know, our vision when creating this podcast is if we inspire even one person to pursue an entrepreneurial journey, I think that this is a huge success, right? So hopefully yeah. you know, from all the listeners, hopefully if someone really decides to go forward, uh, you know, we have a lot of support from students, alumni, uh, professors, angel investors, the ecosystem at NCAD is really, really strong. So, you know, there's nothing to lose right now. So I completely agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, uh, Maxime, thank you so much for your for your time today. Unfortunately, you know, we 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 have to wrap up. Um, but we've heard, you know, a lot of fascinating points today on your journey involving dots. Um, I personally really appreciate some of the things that you said, and they really resonate with me, such as you know how to properly scale your operations. You know, the importance of a clear vision. for sharing your story and for our listeners out there stay tuned for more inspiring perspectives on entrepreneurship startups and scale-ups through alumni and entrepreneurship at NCAD. see you next time thank you